Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of True Conversations podcast. I'm here joined by the brilliant Polina Pompliano, founder of The Profile, where she studies the most successful and interesting people and companies in business, entertainment, tech, sports, and more. And she is the author of the upcoming book, Hidden Genius, which you can pre-order now using the link in the episode's notes. Polina, thank you so much for joining me today. For having me, I'm so excited. I'm very excited as well because, as I mentioned to you, your work in writing the profile and sharing your insights with the world truly has created an impact in the way I think of things, on success, on one's trajectory, on how to make really uh, our time in Earth the most meaningful and most impactful. So I appreciate you joining me. And I would like to start off with your trajectory. You were born in Bulgaria and then moved to the United States. How did your own experience coming to the US and being from a different culture and this clash of ideas, clash of cultures, shape the way you see the world itself and how do you engage with your craft? That's a great place to start um, because that's probably moving to the US from Bulgaria is probably one of the most pivotal moments in my life um, that kind of set me on this trajectory. When I, so I learned to read really, really young. I think I was like four or five. And from there, once I started reading, I really enjoyed writing. Um, I still have journals from when I was six years old where <laughs> just, I, I would just like write random things that I thought of or that I heard, or um, there's a journal entry where I would write uh, a letter to like a family member and then give it to them and make them write back in this journal. It was ridiculous, but it was fun. Um, so from a young age, I really liked writing and communicating and I had a lot of friends and et cetera. But then when we moved to the US, I was eight years old and um, obviously didn't know anybody here, couldn't speak the language, all the cultural norms, I just, I did not understand. Um, in the book, I write about how I still remember the first time that I saw a corn dog <laughs> for lunch at school. And I was like, I don't understand what this is. Because I, I had seen a hot dog before, but a corn dog, it's like breaded completely. Then it's with sweet bread. I was like, what on earth is this? I didn't know how to eat it. So I like, I had my fork and knife. And of course, like that was just gave other kids a license to make fun of me. Because obviously I don't know the cultural norms. Um, but I think that in a way, because I couldn't communicate with other kids, inadvertently, I started just becoming really, really good at observing people mm. and paying attention to the nonverbal cues that maybe some people just like take for granted. I had to learn how to read people because I was like, you know, what does this person want to tell me? Am I in trouble with the teacher? Like you, you just had to find a way to communicate and understand. But it also gave me fuel to be like, I'm better at you. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a very competitive person in the sense of like, I, I don't go out of my way being like, I'm better that, that than that person. I'm going to like do everything to surpass them. But it, it fueled something within me where I was like, I know I'm better than this or like than you know, not being able to read and write. Um, so I learned English very quickly and I started writing again. Um, and then 
that's kind of, that was the positive aspect of it where it's like, it gives you fuel to um, be really, really good at something. But the downside is that I think a lot of people who move from other countries, especially as kids, it's very easy to want to conform and want to fit in. And I think that as somebody who moved with my parents, it was like, America, you got to be like everybody else. We're, we're Americans now and all this stuff where I hated being different. So it was like this incredible pressure to conform. And I, I over-rotated so much that, you know, when I got to college, I was like very well liked. I had a lot of friends, but I never had an opinion and I never had my own voice. And it wasn't until I moved to New York and started working at Fortune where I had to write newsletter with my own opinion that I realized like holy crap like I don't know what I believe like I've always just kind of um parroted what everybody else was saying but like what do I actually believe so I think that that's the challenge that's really really interesting and it made me think you know you've you've mentioned that you're a very competitive person and it's one of the things that in the United States really gets very as a priority being competitive being driven but it seems to me like what you're saying that the competition wasn't really me against them it was me proving how much i can make of myself through my own strengths even though you know it's perfectly natural that you can't speak the language when you move but it's really admirable and like you say one of the things that really gets in the way of progress of individual progress is conformity and I'm very curious because you know I'm still in my mid-20s and still getting to know my own voice getting to know my own thoughts about things and how how have you navigated that inner dialogue with yourself when it comes to you know what do I think versus what was thrown to me and to my uh, my own beliefs yes ah oh, it's so good um in the book, I have an entire chapter about like kind of clarifying your thinking and figuring out what it is you believe and why you believe it. Um, I think Elon Musk said that a lot of us don't have a great firewall when it comes to our brains. So a lot of us just read something and we adopt that belief and then mistake it as our own, but it's actually somebody else's belief and somebody else's words. Um, a really good example of this is when I wrote a deep dive on Tara Westover. She wrote the book Educated, and she grew up in a very secluded, uh, isolated place in Idaho where her parents refused to let the kids go to school. So she had never set foot in a classroom until she was in college. So all of the beliefs that she held were her dad's. Basically, whatever he said, she believed. And it it took her until she got to college when she said them out loud, you know, sexist, homophobic, racist beliefs. She said out loud in a place of a classroom where she said that it took her saying it out loud to hear how ridiculous it sounded and then having other people respectfully debate with her. It wasn't, you know, why did you say that you're canceled? We're never, you're never allowed to say that again. It was more of an examination of like, why do you believe that? And I think that that's the only way that A, you learn about like, wait, why do I believe that? It makes you question it. 
is when there is healthy debate instead of just like a shunning that we're seeing in society lately. Um, but the, the other thing is just examining like, okay, I have this belief. When did I start believing that? Is it outdated? And is, are these my words or are these, or is this something that my parents believed? And I just kind of automatically downloaded into my brain. Um, so I, I think like there's just asking yourself those questions and also finding a group of friends that challenge you often without judgment is probably key. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, it's important to have this meaningful dialogue between each other to, and also have a space where you can share your ideas in, in a way that it's healthy rather than being prone to cancellation, which we're seeing now. But I believe with your work and with the profile that I want to get into and with Hidden Genius, you invite us, you invite me to ask myself from a first order principle, okay, so how did I think about this? How did I think my definition of success? Was it always monetary wealth? Was it always trying to have a high status? Why did I think this? Was it culture? And so you share with us so many aspects of what success means in so many different ways. So I want to start off with that question with success. You've been researching the most interesting people. You've been writing about them. You've been engaging with them and you yourself have become very successful. So how has your own definition of success has evolved as the time passes? And what are some of the key similarities and differences you're seeing with other successful people? I, I love this question. I love the way you framed it because success is one of those things that's pretty much a belief system that you have heard when you were little and you kind of adopted that success probably you, you think of the traditional uh, definition of success. You think money, you think wealth, status, achievement, like, you know, houses, monetary, like monetary things, things you can buy, whatever. Um, that's how most people define success. It's actually really funny to me because I never actually thought about it until I started getting pushback on the profile from people being like, oh, another newsletter that uh, studies successful people. And I was like, why are so many people angry <laughs> that I chose to focus on successful people. And I understood that they were defining it as um, just this like very uh, cliche defini definition of success. Whereas if you've been reading the profile for a long time, you probably know that it's not the traditionally successful people that I like to include. There are a lot of people who you wouldn't think are successful, but in my opinion, they're more successful than somebody who has a lot of money, for example. Um, for me, success, I used to define it as um, more of like career success, like the status game, because as immigrants, my parents always like, they, they were proud when I would achieve something and it was more of like a ladder, right? So when I first got my job in New York at a startup, they were like, wow, that's great. New York, amazing. Next rung was Fortune Magazine, like, holy cow. So I always thought that success meant you make good money, you have a safe, secure job, you have health benefits, insurance, like all of that stuff that you can only dream of when you're an immigrant and you risked everything to come with like great uncertainty to a new country. So I thought that I would stay at Fortune for the rest of my life. But 
that's kind of exactly the definition of success is what prompted me to start thinking about, wait a second, like, what do I actually value and what makes me happy? Um, so in 2020, I read this commencement speech by Anna Quinlan in like 1998, I think she delivered it. And one of the lines in there is, you know, if success is not on your own terms, then it is not success at all. And if it looks good to the world and to everybody else, but not to you, then like, what the hell are you doing? I added that, what the hell are you doing? But that's basically her message. And then she cites uh, Lily Tomlin and she says, um, you know, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. And I was like, oh my God, am I going to be a rat? <laughs> so, uh, so I started like re-examining like, why, why am I so attached to this job and why can't I be an entrepreneur? Like these entrepreneurs that I write about every day. And what it came down to after a lot of introspection was that writer and editor at fortune magazine sounded really important and i knew like if i walk into a room and i was like i work at fortune magazine people would be like oh wow that's incredible that like it gave you just respect automatic respect that i didn't necessarily earn but with the profile once i left i fortune with the profile i realized like i had to earn that respect but also i was willing to bet on myself to learn and to evolve and, and make this thing great from, from the ground up. Um, and like that feeling of fulfillment to me is what success means. Thank you. That's really interesting because like you say, in, in the world that we live in, it's mostly the, the, the path seems to be very linear. You know, you get a college degree, then mm -hmm. you go into a very prestigious company. And then like you say, you introduce yourself, we introduce ourselves by what we do instead of who we are. And what's really interesting is that those traits that you mentioned when we were beginning, you know, being driven, competitive, trying to take the best of yourself and show it, those automatically transfer into your own voice and you were able to lean into it. A lot of people shy away from it because, you know, at the, like, it's a leap of faith at the end of the day. It's it's trying to have faith in yourself without a recipe in, in our society has pretty much laid out a recipe where, like you say, it's, it's not success in, in, in the definition you mentioned by your own terms, but rather it's success in having stability. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, because I can relate to that, is that paradoxically that's, that stability creates more of a burden in, in one's own self because I have so much to offer, you know? I, I'm more than just a writer. I'm more than just a voice. I'm, I have my own ideals I want to share with. So that leap of faith, Paulina, you took it, and then in hindsight, you, you, I, I feel this is me guessing. I would like to hear your thoughts. You, you can see how all the pieces of the puzzle created to, started to take form. In hindsight, it makes sense. But in the meantime, in that moment, especially, you're like, I'm, I just messed up my whole career. So how did you navigate that leap of faith? And what were some of the key insights you take that you can share with us? Yes. 
So two things come to mind. First, um, I was really scared to leave. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to say it now, but at the time I called it the seesaw of misery where you would wake up and I'd be like, absolutely, I'm going to do it today. I'm going to tell them. And then by the time I was going to sleep, I was like, oh my God, are you crazy? I write about this stuff. Like I was writing about tech and entrepreneurship and, you know, in, in this, there's a 10 year cycle. And we were approaching this 10 year cycle of like a recession's going to come. And I was like, what if like I quit my job and then there's a recession? What I didn't know is there, there was going to be a global pandemic instead. <laughs> um, but, but the, at the time I read a lot of things that almost like were kind of like serendipity. I don't know if it was confirmation bias or serendipity, but the more I thought about it, you know, when you have an idea in your head and everything you see just like confirms or whatever that uh, backs up that idea. So the second that I started thinking about what would it look like if I left and worked on the profile full time, the more all these articles and podcasts I was listening to, I was like, oh my God, like <laughs> the universe must be trying to tell me something. So one of the things that I did was I was working at the time on a deep dive on um, Jim Cook, who created... Um, uh, the, the Samuel Adams beer, the company behind Samuel Adams beer. And at the time he was working at Boston consulting group, BCG, and he was making really good money, like a quarter million dollars. He had a house, he had a family. He, he felt very comfortable and safe at this job. But then he was like, oh man, but like, I really like beer and I don't know much about it, but I found this like recipe in the attic from my great, great grandfather. Um, so maybe like, what if I leave and start a craft brewer or whatever? And he had this idea in his head and he kept going back and forth. And then there was one question that he asked himself that then I asked myself. And it was like, if there, there's two sides to risk, right? Like he's like, if I stay, you know, is this a scary decision or is this a dangerous decision? And he basically said, like, there's a lot of things in life that are scary. You might be scared to tell your boss that you're leaving. You might be scared that you uh, will have to spend a lot of money on this new project and do you have enough saved, et cetera. Or the other alternative is, is it dangerous if I stay? That means when I'm 84 years old and I look back, is he going to be like, damn, I wish I had taken the chance and started that brewing company or... Am I happy I stayed at my cushy, comfortable job for the rest of my life and learned nothing? So the answer for him was like, do the scary thing. Don't fall into the dangerous one. And it was the same for me. I knew that if I had stayed at Fortune for another five years, I would not have learned more than if I left for the profile, falled flat on my face and failed miserably. I would still have learned more from the second experience rather than the, the Fortune one. Um, and then- the other thing that I read that I still keep in mind today is Chris Hadfield. He's an astronaut and he was um, on the International Space Station when he was outside of it. He was working on the ISS outside of the station and um, all of a sudden in his helmet, he like he got something in his eye and he was like, what the hell? And it was, they, they used the, this defogger to clean their helmets. And I guess there was a little bit of mixture in there and it was on his eye. 
because there's no gravity, <laughs> the thing was just like stuck to his eye and he couldn't see. So he temporarily went blind while outside of the ISS. Wow. And in that kind of moment, like you're terrified, right? But he immediately started like thinking of things he could do um, to to prevent that. He's like, okay, well, I have option A. I could call for help. I could call Houston. I could call my whatever fellow astronaut that's out here to do an inca incapacitated uh, rescue. I could, um, like he had all these options. Finally, what he ended up doing is he decided to cry a little bit and open a vent so that like the the water would like fizzle out. I don't know. So, but anyway, he, he did that. That was an option to him and it worked. And he said, basically the lesson in that is that um, competence builds confidence. If you're competent, you don't get scared in moments of crisis because you know you have the skills to overcome it. And he says one line that I'll never forget. He says, um, things aren't scary. People get scared. So he uses the example of when you're little and you're learning to ride a bike, you're really scared because you know you could fall, you could crash, you could hit your head. And then over time, as you get better, like the bike becomes less scary, but it's not that the bike became less scary. It's that you became more competent. So I kept that in mind. I was like, I have the skills to do this. Even if things are scary, I know I'll figure out a way to make it work. Wow. That's really, really amazing. And Paulina, you mentioned so many ideas here that I want to take a jab at it. There's so many interesting points that I want to take. I'm just trying to see which one should I tackle first, because you mentioned so, so many crucial things like having this competence versus confidence uh, debate, this fight between one another and being able to, I think it's the way I, I think about it is expanding that space between thought and reaction and having the ability to listen to one's own inner dialogue in a way that it's constructive and not destructive. Like he could have just, the, uh, he could have just ended his life there, you know, some bad decision and that's it. Or like you say, with your own trajectory, you could have just said, you know, my inner self, my, my heart is just playing games with me. You know, I should stick with a linear path that I'm having, but rather you leaned into your own intuition, what you thought was best for you. And it paid off in an amazing way. And it's really admirable for, for people like me who's trying to carve their own path. And mm -hmm. you write your first profile, you write your first article. That's 2017, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, yep, so, this month. <laughs> wow, amazing. So 2017, you write your first profile. Did you ever imagine you'd be publishing a book after that? When you first write your profile, how did you feel? And what is the importance of just starting? Yeah. Um, so what you're doing right now and what I did with the profile and what uh, Brandon Stanton did with Humans of New York when he picked up a camera, it's not that you sit down and you have this master plan of like, oh, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to turn it into a business and then it's going to make this much money and I'll, you know, write a book. That's not at all what I thought. Um, and I'm guessing neither did you and neither did Brandon. Uh, I think what happens a lot of times is that you 
you start with like something with like a small kernel of passion. You do this because you enjoy it. And then you can always back into whatever you want in the future. But in that moment, like you don't know. When I started, Substack wasn't around. Like I didn't know that one day people would pay for newsletters. Like that's insane. Um, I did it because I just really liked long-form profiles. Uh, and then the other thing is, I think I've learned over time is that David Perel said this. He said, everything you put out into the world is a vehicle for serendipity. So every podcast that you publish, every newsletter that I sent, um, so it has the potential to land in front of somebody that you never intended it to in an amazing way. It happened with uh, me and The Rock. I, I wrote a dossier on him. I never thought that The Rock like looks at his mentions on Twitter. But then he ended up tweeting about it four times. Then he put it on Instagram, put it on Facebook. I ended up on Bulgarian national television because of this one thing that I wrote uh, wow. just, you know, haphazardly. So I like, if you think about it that way, like um, everything that I do takes a life of its own after I publish it. It's a really good way of making sure that your work never dies and that the momentum continues. But the other thing that I'm incredibly, incredibly uh, vocal about now is that you're not a writer until you start writing in public. Like you, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of people I know that they want to put out the perfect thing. And it's like, that doesn't exist. And you can't do it on the first try. When I first started writing on the internet or like for a publication, I realized very quickly, there's so much feedback and criticism, but that was good for me. Like that was, you're making the work better. If you go back to February of 2017 and look at the very first edition of the profile, it's objectively terrible. Like the formatting's bad, the voice is bad, everything is bad, but the bones were there, like the foundation was there. So that's why I think people continued to stick around, but they would tell me like, improve this, improve that. I don't like this. And that's kind of what made it better. So I think like, if you want to do anything in this world, anything meaningful, you have to start doing it in public, even if it's something you think you're bad at. Um, I never thought I was good at public speaking. I avoided it like the plague until um, I was at Fortune and they were like, listen, if you're going to be in media, you got to learn how to be on video. And <laughs> actually, my very first interview was with Frank Abagnale um, at Fortune when he came. And I was so nervous. I recently rewatched that interview. I was so nervous that my voice was shaking. And he was just like, what is happening? Like, this is supposed to be a professional person at fortune interviewing me and my voice was shaking and I couldn't I couldn't stop it and I was like sweating profusely it's it's terrible uh it's terrible but great to look back now and I think like that if you really really want to get better at your craft no matter what it is start doing it in public and now when I look at this book I every time I look at it I'm like I I genuinely can't believe that came from my brain but it didn't right it wasn't I didn't sit down and write a book. I've written it over the last five years. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And the power of iteration and just sticking with it and understanding that even though one can feel fear, which is and nervousness or whatever, some people like yourself just say it's part of the process. I know where my heart is. Instead of saying, you know what, this, this is just a, a message from 
the universe saying I shouldn't do it because my palms are a bit sweaty, you know, and it, it doesn't work that way. Especially, you know, this might be far-fetched, but when, when one is really trying to uncover one's own craft, this, it's like life giving you those tests, you know, are you really up for the game? And yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, <laughs> I just, please. after you said that, I just had a thought that I want to add. Um, that, like how we were talking about earlier when I said I'm not very competitive with other people, but like I am with myself. Yeah. That moment uh, when I watched the interview of me interviewing Frank Abagnale, I was just like, that's not, like that, that can't be me. Like I wanted to get better. And that's why one of my big theories in life is that your strengths at one point where you're probably your biggest insecurities. And I think like, because I was so bad at it, it pissed me off. And so I had to get better. And that's why like I, you know, after that, I signed up for every panel, every podcast, every, everybody who would ask me, I just said yes, because I wanted to improve. And after a while, you just like, naturally improve, you rewatch it, you're like, I'm rambling, this is bad. And then and then you do it again. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's repetition. It's kind of like, uh, I have family who are psychologists. It's exposure therapy in a way. It's exposing yourself to what one, you fear the most and it helps a lot. And you bring Frank Abagnale to the conversation and it connects perfectly with what you said against between competence and confidence. Mm -hmm. And I'm very curious because a lot of people, and I've been noticing in the world of success or the profiles that you've wrote about in the profile and what I think you'll write about in Hidden Genius is some people really fake it till they make it. So do you think this is true? Is this accurate? Are people really faking it that just creates a personality of itself like Frank Abagnale because he, he's a con man and you can go into as much detail as you can if you yeah. want. Okay. <laughs> so I've never liked the idea of like faking it till you make it because I, I think that that's what I was talking about earlier when you conform, yeah. it's called, it's called like normative social influence. I think when it's like, you're saying one thing publicly, but in private, you believe something else. And then that you get really lonely because you feel like, oh, everybody likes me. I have all these friends, but inside I actually believe something else. Um, that's not right. And I think that that's a lot of like the philosophy of fake it till you make it like pretend you're somebody you're not until you make it and then you can be who you are but like by that point it's too late I think um so and I think that's the danger if you do believe in the traditional definition of success and you're like over here you know like I got a lot of money I got hot cars and whatever and then you make it now you have to keep going with that image you can't just suddenly be like no that wasn't me um so I think I like the idea more of this is one trait that a lot of successful people have done, which is more of like adopting an alter ego, but that alter ego isn't a fake version of yourself. It's, it's an ideal aspirational self. So it's like, who do you want to ultimately become? Start embodying that person today. There's so many examples. I mean, um, Beyonce used to be really, really shy and introverted and not at all like how she is today. So she would, um, she created this like alter ego called Sasha Fierce, who was confident and sexy and whatever. So every time she went on stage, she was like, I am now Sasha Fierce. Like there was like a mental switch, right? So she she gave herself license to embody this person. Um, 
Kobe Bryant did the same thing when he was being booed at uh, basketball games. He adopted this alter ego of the Black Mamba. Here, like you can say boo Kobe all the time or like all that you want, but like, that's not me right now. I'm like this like snake that comes to life, whatever. Um, and then the other person that comes to mind is, I mean, David Goggins, uh, who was really, really weak as a kid. And he was like, that was David. I am now Goggins. He likes to say that he he wasn't born, but he was built um, because he built himself into this person. And I think like the beauty of an alter ego is that because it's your aspirational self, over time, you become it. Like you don't fake it. You just like strive to become that person. Um, and yeah, like if you want to be a professional athlete, maybe stop drinking and stop smoking now because do professional athletes do that? Like maybe not. It, it just like, I, I think when, for me, I use this uh, because I used to be really shy in high school, but then when I wanted to pursue journalism, I was like, you can't be shy and interview people. So to me, like knowing like, okay, now I'm Paulina, like the journalist that I, I became a person of like, I I'm here to ask you questions and I'm serious and I'm whatever, but like you, you start to become that person over time. And, and I think that that's much healthier than faking it. Absolutely. And one of the ideas that I use, one of the mental frameworks I try to use when that happens is, are my actions really aligned with my higher self, with who I want to be? And that brings me back to, to like you say, brings me back to all of those actions that really turn in, you into your best self, like you mentioned, and all of those success stories, including yours truly resonate with that and of course success is not a linear path upwards there are pitfalls there are moments where one is really really insecure about the path that one's taking and i can imagine if writing writing a book is a big deal it's i i remember once you wrote in one of the in one of the blog spots in the profile that there are three things one person should do when they're born it's having a family, planting a tree and writing a book. And you've accomplished the three of them, which is really, really amazing. And it's this dissonance between writing a book, wanting to write it, but also wanting to write a quality book, like trying to use a true voice, your true voice. So how do you maintain that quality content in your writing in Hidden Genius without that pressure of, I need to finish a book? Yeah, I I can't remember. I think it was Tim Ferriss or somebody said like, if you don't like writing, if you don't genuinely love it, writing a book is going to be really damn hard. Like, just don't even do it because it's hard for people who love writing in general, let alone like if you hate writing and you're like, I'm just going to do this to put out a book for marketing purposes to whatever my brand, like that's not at all <laughs> what it should be. Um, and I think because I went into it so um, with such low expectations and also if you noticed, I did not announce, I, I didn't tell anybody about the book until pre-sales were available <laughs> because I genuinely didn't think I would finish it. Like I was like, this is, this is a cute project, but I don't think that I just have the time or the energy to finish this. And then I did. And, and the way it worked is um, because my expectations were low and because I did it um, so in, in such tiny pieces that it came together actually pretty fast. I started in again, February um, of 2020 two 
<laughs> what year are we? 2022. And I finished uh, at the end of June in 2022. So a few months, but it would be like my project every single night. Like I looked forward to that time because I also had a baby and she wasn't sleeping. So when she would actually go to sleep at night at 7 PM, I would sit down and be like, ah, like now I can write. Um, but I think the way to alleviate the pressure of something so big and such a big project is for me, it started with, I'm just going to write um, like a table of contents. And then I'm just going to write like a book proposal to a publisher, which is only one page. Then I'm going to um, only write like one section of one sample chapter and I send it to them. And then, uh, and then the feedback was good from the publisher. And I was like, oh, like maybe they like it. And then that would motivate me to write the second section. I, I literally did it. You'll notice in the book, every chapter is split into three sections. And those three sections are the length of a profile article. So, I mean, it was basically like writing an article a day, which I was kind of doing anyway. Um, so it, it seemed more manageable than just like looking at this thing and be like, oh my God, you wrote a book. It's like, I wrote a lot of like little tiny blog posts that make up a book. And what were some of the biggest pitfalls you fell into? while writing Hidden Genius? And what is one mental framework you used or a thought or, you know, like a vision that you had that truly brought you back to your confidence zone? For me, it was always about, um, I wanted to put together all these lessons that I've learned from all these people into one comprehensive thing. And for me, that was a book. For some people, it's a documentary. For others, it's a different form of medium. Uh, but for me, it was like, okay, I I, I want to do this. Um, one, for me, it's like, once I commit to something, like I don't stop. <laughs> and I, um, I always say this, like, it, it's not, I don't think that people fail. Like, for example, when I was in high school and I was playing soccer, I was good, but I also wasn't very good <laughs> I was I was not the best but I was like somewhere in the middle and and then I always look at it as a failure like I'm like man like we never really won that much we didn't go to the state championship like we didn't be we, we weren't good as a team and my thought now is yeah like did I fail at becoming a great soccer player or did I just like not try enough because I didn't care that much about it like I think if you actually genuinely care about something you're gonna bust your butt to make it great and you're not going to stop if you don't really care it's probably gonna quote unquote fail because you just kind of leave it unfinished um so there were many pitfalls in the writing of the book uh, <laughs> uh many of which so i'm the type of person that i actually really enjoy a deadline i like deadlines because i have something to look towards and be like okay i need to finish this by that time um, and I actually do really well under pressure. Like uh, journalism appeals to me because you wake up, there's news, you got to write it fast and then it's out the door. Like there's this like pressure, that adrenaline that I really enjoy. So for me, for the book, because it's such a long process, these tiny deadlines I saw as like set in stone that I couldn't miss. Um, and then the the pitfalls was near the end of the book, I just there was a hiccup where I miscalculated how many words I needed to have a full book. So there was a, a little bit more pressure at the end. Um, so at the end, I was like, I need to, I need to get this into the publisher by this date, because if I don't, 
the publishing process is a year long. Uh, and if I don't get it in by this day, it's not going to publish by June of this year. I can't have it keep going. Um, so I got this, I never get headaches and I got a headache so bad that it, it would like, it, it was able to come like every 30 seconds. So I would write and I'd be like, Oh my God, it was terrible. I've never had a headache like that in my life to the point where I consulted a friend who is a doctor. I was like, what is happening to me? And I think it, it was funny because the second that I turned in my final draft of the book, it went away. So it's like this pressure that you put on yourself, that's a not healthy, uh, but be like, I, I think a, a lot of reading your questions, I kind of got a sense of how you think. And I, I think it's like, um, why, I don't know. It's like, you, sh you shouldn't put so much pressure on something when you know you have the skills, but like, I think like overachievers do that anyway. Um, whether you over over prepare overdo it over whatever and i think in that process i learned like it's okay to step back and it's okay to not be david goggins all the time but like figure out what fits your personality and do that yeah absolutely and i when i when i write my questions like you say it's just so it, it begins connecting ideas with ideas and then i just put it out and then according to how we we talk and how the conversation goes I like trying to explore more of the gems that you're providing me now. So those are more like help in a way. But like you say, I also tend to fall into the pitfall where I like to overdo it in a way. But it's, it's yeah, yeah, I like it. And like you say, it's your mental framework of trying to keep yourself accountable as well with either deadlines or committing to uh, a strong vision of what you want to accomplish is really important and getting into depths of the hidden genius your, your book you've really researched and talked about the most successful people on earth and what is one pattern pattern that you think you found with within researching the most successful what is one mental framework they use to keep going while facing, facing adversity? While facing adversity? Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, mental resilience to the point of um, kind of like how I talked about, they don't see failure as failure. Um, for example, uh, Courtney Dahlwalter is an ultra runner. And when she's had some crazy experiences during her runs. She had a bleeding head injury at one point. She was hallucinating at another point. Um, but she does these really, really long races. Uh, and then the way she thinks about pain is that she personifies it. So she says that it's more of like a place you go to and a place that she's excited to find the entrance to than like, something where you're, you're, you can't control it. So I think like they take uncertainty and they take risk and they try to figure out how to manage it and control it. Because if it's outside of your control, you're kind of at the mercy of the elements. Uh, but I think the most successful people take something very uncertain and something very risky and have techniques to, uh, mitigate the risk. I think uh, there's one surfer 
Garrett McNamara, he says he sees himself as a risk technician, not a risk taker. Um, so he looks at risk and he's like, okay, that some might consider that's risky, but I'm going to like take the risk out by mitigating it by, by being a technician and breaking it out into these tiny chunks so that I feel safe doing it. That's really interesting. And like you say, it's part, part of the key for success and for your success as well has been embracing that risk, embracing that uncertainty and that leap of faith. And one of my favorite profiles that you wrote on was Sarah Blakely's. Which That's is, my favorite too. <laughs> it's really amazing. And you write it in a perfect way. So it really transmits the message and it really goes into the what we're talking on, taking that leap of faith and not knowing what's next door, what's on, on that void. And it kept me thinking, you know, like she said, and what you wrote, quote unquote, if I would have won the, if, if I would have uh, passed the LSAT, Spanx would have not exist. I wouldn't be a billionaire. Blackstone would have not buy my company for billions. Mm -hmm. And it's impressive because I've been thinking about this quote and I'm butchering it, but we, we tend to wish up, upon something happening And sometimes the best thing that happens to us is that thing that we wish it happened didn't happen. It, it was a puzzle. So sorry for saying that like that and for our listeners. But basically the way is the thing that, don't, that you wish happened and didn't happen, it was probably the best thing that happens to you. So it's, it's really wise in hindsight, like we've mentioned before. But during that moment of taking that leap of faith is is really difficult. So what were some of your biggest insights hearing and writing and listening to Sarah Blakely's story? And how did you extrapolate her own journey into, you know, failing the LSAT, which can be a massive failure, massive drawdown, and turning into a billion dollar fortune? Yeah, Sarah Blakely was actually one of the people that inspired the profile because it made me realize that her story made me realize that this is the way that I learn. When I was 22 or 23, whenever I moved to New York, um, I was, I was kind of lost. At the time I was working at the startup, I didn't really know what I was going to do. It didn't feel right. I wanted to be writing. I wasn't writing. And, um, and I heard her podcast on how I built this. That's probably one of my favorite podcasts of all time, that episode. Um, and she, as I was listening to her, I was like, oh my God, like I see myself in a young Sarah. Um, and her story, I after I listened to the podcast episode, I went and looked her up and started going down these rabbit holes. And I was completely obsessed with how she did what she did. And that shows that this is how I learn. I learn through other people's stories and other people's journeys. So of course I started the profile because that's what I do every single day and it's the best. But with her specifically, she has so many um, different techniques in that she shows how much of entrepreneurship and how much of life is just mindset. And if you're not in the right mindset, what can happen? Um, so when she was young, I mean, she was just like failing 
like big meaty like fat failures she would um in college she wanted to be goofy at disney world but she didn't meet the height requirement then um she wanted she wanted to be a trial attorney and she failed the lsat and then after that she uh started selling fax machines at age 27 and until she like kind of turned around looked at her life and she was like i am in the wrong movie like this is not my movie um and then she took $5,000, which was her life savings, and bet it on an idea that she had one time when she was going to a party and the panty lines were showing under her white pants. So she cut the the feet off of her pantyhose and that was Sphinx. Uh, but <laughs> such a simple, simple idea. But she knew that if she told people about it, even family and friends, that idea would, they would extinguish it they would be like this is so stupid no if if it if it was such a good idea why doesn't it exist already and she knew that that was going to happen so she kept it secret until two years in when she was ready to just launch it um and that five thousand dollars became a billion eventually <laughs> but her the most interesting thing about how she approaches failure and uncertainty is that when she was very little um, her family would sit around the di dinner table and her dad would make every single person go around and say what they failed at that day. And she said that if she didn't have like a really good juicy failure to share, he would be genuinely disappointed because what that meant was, oh, that means you didn't try hard enough that day. That means you didn't take any sort of risk today. And um, that's so powerful to do as a young kid because it reframes failure in your mind as not trying. If you didn't fail, then you didn't try. So I think that that's why she's been so successful. I mean, you try a bunch of stuff, it doesn't work. And then you're like, okay, what now? So it's like the power of reframing failure and also the power of reinvention. She wasn't goofy. She wasn't a trial attorney. She wasn't um, you know, a, a failed fax machine salesman. She was an entrepreneur. So that's how you do it. <laughs> that's amazing. And it just makes me think a lot on, you know, the current system that we live in and not, it's just not trying to create any riots or whatever or not complaints. Just modernity in itself is just, we've built a lot of guardrails in terms of risk, individual risk, you know, and like we talked before, just this notion of what is expected of us and those check marks, those, those checklists that we need to cross in one's life, in our life. And then turning back into when we're 80 years old and thinking like, I checked all of the boxes, but why do I feel rather empty? Why, why do I feel in a way that I, I haven't accomplished anything? And that idea in itself at our age is frightening because yeah. it's, it's, we can envision ourselves checking all of the boxes, but not the inner, not the inner satisfaction, not the inner, this is why I came to earth, you know? And it's really remarkable that you've been able to extrapolate all of these frameworks and not only share it with us, with me, and allowing me to process it myself, but for you, for your own pathway, like, okay, so instead of seeing their success as casting a shadow into my own, how can I build it into my own success, into my own story and play with those ideas, which is really amazing. And part of Sarah Blakely's story that's really interesting is her unsuccessful stories, the, the, embracing the, the risk and embracing the failure. So is this 
kind of trajectory, this kind of thriving success, the one that really inspires you the most, you know, the, the hero's journey what, where you're in the pathway of being a lawyer and then just boom, going down and then like a rocket going upwards? Yeah. If, if you read the profile, you know that I really like complicated, like messy people. I like the people who don't have a linear path. I like the ones that, you know, went down some path, then they just, something happened, they failed, then they found another way, they reinvented themselves, they learned some lessons from that failure, they applied those lessons into the next thing they did, and then maybe they failed again, maybe they did continued with that. But I just, I like the winding journey, and I also like stories of redemption. I like stories where you look at it, you're like, oh, damn, like, how are you going to come back from this one? And like, you just don't, there's, there's some sort of, like, conflict, there's some friction, because you know that the person going through it is going to learn so much from that, that they will have the tools necessary to succeed again in whatever way they choose. But I like, I like what um, Ed Catmull, who's one of the co-founders of Pixar says, he says like, when they're creating these movies, he's like, it's, it's, if something doesn't work, it, it's not even a failure. He's like the, the definition of failure to him is if you did something that didn't work and then you fail, you didn't learn from it. Like if you didn't learn from your mistakes or you didn't learn from the circumstances of what happened, then that's a failure. But if you learned and then you applied it to the next thing, then it's not a failure. You're just like evolving and you're iterating. Yeah, that's literally it. The, the fact that we can, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm butchering that, but let's keep yeah, it no. <laughs> like that for, for, for now. And it's, you know, this idea of evolving, this idea of, of rising above rising above and understanding like we've been talking about your own trajectory that i i believe we all have that inner inner voice saying you can rise above and it's mostly from from your success story what i what i see and you can correct me if i'm wrong but you've been able to to really learn from your mistakes while adding a new piece of software from the environment that would allow you to expose yourself to new situations and also to new environments that would in, in amazingly unlock a new part of your brain like you know Paulina maybe in x environment behaves this way so what if i use these ideas and go other location those mm -hmm. th those I, those keys that a lot of people can use which are very good frameworks and you've transparently shared with us. So in Hidden Genius, I'm really excited because you're gonna share a lot of these software pieces. I like to, to uh, refer to them that way. So all of us can reach our higher selves. So if right now I had a magic wand and I could give it to you and I would, you could take, have any wish you could have in, in, in terms of instilling a software into one's minds, just everyone's minds right now, which one would it be? Ooh. It's probably the ability to think for yourself and think for yourself and not in the way of like, you know, I'm rigid. I am. This is what I've always thought. And I'm always going to think this way. It's more of like becoming, um, 
in the book, I talk about Julia Galef, who she um, work, he, she has a podcast about rationality called Rationally Speaking, but she's all about like, to be rational, you need to be able to be a scout instead of a soldier. And the idea is that a soldier is out on the field, he wants to, on the battlefield, he wants to fight and he wants to win. Like that, that is the priority, fight, protect, win. But when you're a scout, you, they send you out there to the battlefield and you're kind of like surveying the terrain. You're observing things. You're like, oh, this is interesting. That's not what I thought, but like that, let's write that down. And it's just like, I think being more of an observer in life and, and less of a, I am right. Like this is what I think and what I have always thought. Taking a scout mentality allows you to form your own opinions, develop your own voice and like figure out who the hell you are so that you can have informed opinions versus just somebody screaming on the internet. Um, so I think like if we could all just uh, uh, absorb our environment more and become more aware of what we're doing on a daily basis and why we're doing it, then we can start to like really think for ourselves. And once you start thinking for yourself, then like this whole world opens up to you with options and I think the one thing that like I really have enjoyed in my life that I always strive for is to create optionality. Don't only think that you have this one option that you have, that's it. It's like you always have this array of options, but keep those like open and, and, and do thought experiments of like, well, what if I go down this path and what would that look like? Or this path and what, what, what would that look like? I think like every great idea first starts with a question. Wow. That's really, really amazing. And I would share that with all of our listeners, you know, that this, this idea of really trying to have a scout mind in, especially in a disruptive world that we are living in, in disruptive technologies, which can be used in our favor or against us. But if we have this scout mindset, we, we can use them, we can leverage them to thrive. So for example, using the internet to share your ideas, five years, committing five years to that became a book, Paulina, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a power of leveraging your own ideas and your, through the environment itself. So now that we're beginning to wrap up, Paulina, you know, the, the biggest question I had is relating to your dent in the universe, you know, having your quote-unquote legacy, which is more cheesy. I like to th say, I think, I don't know if your dent in the universe is cheesier. <laughs> I, leave, <laughs> I leave that to you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But let's say that in 10, 20 or 50 years, 100 years from now, you look back into publishing your book, with, which is released, by the way, in June 20, 2023. Mm -hmm. You look back 50 years from now, what would you wish, you know, what is the dent in the universe from hidden genius, from your ideas? I always think about it in the way of when I first moved to New York in my early 20s, how, how much I needed, like, not guidance, but I needed to see somebody who uh, I really admired their path not maybe like their destination, but like I, I liked how they moved through the world. And I always like, I'll get emails from 
girls in college or people who have just recently graduated from college and like trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And it's like, at that point in time, you have so many people in your life who think they know more than you, who think they're experts. And they're telling you like, you have to work at this place or you have to do this. And because they're like voices of authority, you're like, oh my God, that this is absolutely what I should do. Um, and I fell into that and I believed those people until like I wasn't happy. So I think that I hope when I look back with this book, I hope that there's like a group of people, I don't care if they're five or 10 or 5,000, I hope that there's a group of people who found this book and they were able to read about all these different people with all their successes, with all their failures, with all the things that they had to sacrifice to get to where they are to understand like, oh, okay, like there's not only one path, there's all these things available and I can learn from these people and not idolize any single one of them because they all have their flaws, but I can learn from them. And how can I apply those things to my own life to make good decisions right now? That's amazing. And like you say, and I'm probably also butchering this quote, it's from Carl Jung that says, there's no shoe that fits, there's no shoe that fits two feet the same way. I think I'm mm. probably gonna receive backlash on it. I'll put That's it in the notes. <laughs> And if, even if you didn't say that, you should say that. It's yeah, good. yeah. <laughs> but like you say, it's those voices of authority navigating, you know, the fact that there are people who have been in, on earth more than us, but they themselves have carved their own path, either by following uh, the, you know, society or by following one's own heart. That's an invitation to discover what makes our hearts really, really bright and really feel the, that passion in our own selves. And mm -hmm. it's really important having people like you, Paulina, that invite us to, to say, you know what, these are successful people, these are successful stories, not idealizing them, just sharing their pitfalls, which you brilliantly do, and also their successes that came out as a consequence of them, embracing failure, embracing risk, volatility, and understanding that we can all make a dent in the universe. So I appreciate you joining me. I appreciate you sharing your ideas. And I hope to talk with you more in depth in another round of this episode, on this conversation. And yeah, if there's anything else that you would like to, to cover right now or that we can share, we can do it. I think that's it. That, that was an excellent interview. I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Thank you, Paulina. And for all of you listening, I'll put the show in the show notes the link to pre-order Hidden Genius. I also put the link for Polina's profile, the profile in Substack. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining me, Polina. I appreciate it. So much. I really appreciate it.